Well, turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 12 this evening. Matthew chapter 12, as we've made our way through much of Matthew's gospel, we'll conclude looking at Matthew chapter 12 this evening. Matthew chapter 12, and we will read verses 38 through 50. Matthew 12, beginning at verse 38, here now, God's word. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. When an impure spirit comes out of a person and goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it, then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my brother and here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Amen. Let's. Pray and ask for God's help. Father in heaven, again, we seek you for your help. We need you every hour as we sang, especially when we come to the holy things of God. So help us to handle them well. Fill me with your spirit. Bless us with ears to hear, our hearts to receive, eyes to see. And then send us out, Lord. What will the next six days bring for us? You alone know, but you will shape us, equip us now to live as salt and light as your people, loving you and loving others. Pray you'd help us to do that well. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we pick up in this chapter driving the same theme, riding the same bus. It's carried us through all of chapters 11 and 12. And that is this escalating objection to Jesus' authority. Our passage tonight opens on that very note where the Pharisees and teachers of the law say, we want to see a sign from you. You've made great claims. Jesus has claimed to be greater than the temple earlier in this chapter. Lord of the Sabbath. One who acts by the Spirit of God. The presence of God is with them. Establishing God's reign. And it's all concentrated in Jesus. And as the crowd see these miracles, they start to recognize who he might be. They call him Son of David. And as Israel's religious leaders hear that, well, such claims should be authenticated with a sign. 
Now it makes you wonder, have you not observed Jesus' miracles? Where have you been all this time? But nonetheless, they make the demand. If you are who you say you are, prove it with a sign. But instead of offering a sign, instead of giving them another proof of who he is, Jesus offers only a future sign, the sign of Jonah. And in offering the future sign, he escalates his claims of greatness. One greater than Jonah is among you. One greater than Solomon. I'll give you a sign. I'll see your demand for a sign and I'll raise it. I'll give you a sign and it'll be the greatest sign. And in giving them that sign, or at least in promising that there will be a sign, he refocuses on them. Now you need to hear one more time my warning to you. He warns them of their present rejection. Last time we were in Matthew, we looked at the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the sin that can never be forgiven, a very difficult passage. He's given that warning, and that's going to echo here. He's going to reiterate to them how serious their situation is. But then he's going to conclude with this heartwarming, inclusive description of Jesus' true family. So essentially, tonight's passage presents us with a double emphasis, a two-sided message, so to speak. Warnings for unbelievers, but family for believers. So let's look at how that develops. First, the warnings for unbelievers. The passage begins with the Pharisees demanding this sign from Jesus. And again, they view themselves as the guardians of Israel's religion. They want God to bless their nation. They view themselves as the protectors of God's blessing. And so they have to challenge Jesus. If he's, if he's making these claims, they, he have, they have to challenge him to make sure that we don't have a false teacher or, or a sorcerer in our midst that might jeopardize God's blessing. And on one level, it's understandable. That's their heritage. The most likely forerunners of the Pharisees are, are a group of people from a few hundred years earlier who fought for the purity of religion, who fought for the purity of worship, who fought for faith amidst hostile persecution. They had a good origin. But as the years have gone by, they've lost sight of their God. Man-made traditions have crept in, and now they're missing entirely what God is doing among them because of their traditions. And they're demanding this sign. They're making this, this demand of Jesus that he prove who he is, even though he's already demonstrated it time and again. And again, I say, you know, asking for a sign, on one level, it's understandable. I mean, read the Old Testament. Moses did signs, yeah, they're in Egypt. Gideon with the fleece and other actions. Elijah, who can read the, the narratives there in Kings and not see those mighty signs. Isaiah, offering signs to the rulers of his day. But again, Jesus has already done that. Jesus has given them signs. And instead of seeing the sign and heeding the message, they've just offered alternative explanations. I mean, no matter what you throw about these guys, they, they, can, they can always deflect. You know, Prove who you say you are. Give us a sign. Jesus gives them a sign. Well, you did that by Satan. I mean, they're just always able to deflect Jesus' claims. Their grid of tradition filters it all out. So it's really hard to know just what it is they want here. And Jesus picks up on that. In verse 39, he says, It is a wicked and adulterous generation that asks for a sign. And so Jesus refuses their request. He will not accommodate 
their unbelief. And I think this helps us understand how miracles and signs work in the Bible. They do have value. When John was doubting, Jesus said, you go back and tell him what you see, that the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf rejoice. So miracles have value. They bring comfort to those who are well disposed towards Jesus. They're in line with the Old Testament. But that's not what driving this request. When the request is driven by unbelief, when the request is driven by a refusal to be persuaded, the signs will have no effect. And so Jesus says, I will not accommodate that. I will not give in to that request for a sign. It feels like Israel. In Egypt, God amazes them with signs so that they'll believe and follow. But once you start getting to the wilderness, and there's been sign after sign after sign, there's challenge after challenge after challenge, this is where Israel's God begins to show his anger. When will these people believe in me? That's what's going on with Jesus. God is focused. His work his purpose, his power, his salvation. He's focused it in Jesus. And Jesus has given them solid reasons to believe and they won't, the leaders won't. And so therefore, Jesus says, no more signs, no more signs in the present, just one more sign, the sign of Jonah. And that's what he says there in verse 40. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus says, I'm done accommodating unbelief. I'm not going to do that. However, I will give you one more sign, a sign in the future, because this is a sign that will vindicate me for time to come. This will be the ultimate sign that validates I am who I claim to be and that you should submit to my truth. And what Jesus is going to do here is he's going, to, he's going to set up that sign by appealing to certain elements of Israel's history. He says, just like Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, well, I'll be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And he's going to go on later in this chapter and make the comment, you know, a greater than Jonah is here and a greater is Solomon than here. He's taking these Old Testament people. And these Old Testament patterns and, and these Old Testament institutions, like we thought about this morning, the mercy seat. And he's going to show, look how they're repeated in me, but on a higher level. It's like a trench has been dug, and I'm going to fill that in. I'm going to be the ultimate fulfillment of that expectation. And so the sign that Jesus offers that will validate him is this idea of him being raised from the dead. So on one level, there's a similarity. Both Jonah and Jesus were confined for a three-day period. And it was God's intervention that brought that three-day period to an end. Eventually, the, the whale or the fish spat Jonah out on the ground. Eventually, Jesus will be raised from the dead. But there's similarity and there's escalation. So just as Jonah had a miserable experience, well, Jesus suffers God's wrath and dies. In order to be the ultimate fulfillment of these Old Testament symbols and thus a powerful sign that serves as ultimate vindication. And before we go on, before we, we settle on, on the main point, do notice the language here, three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Sometimes that, that's been a, a little bit of a tripping point or, or the, the question is asked, okay, how does three days and three nights square with Jesus being raised on the third day? 
which is language Jesus frequently employed. I'll die and be raised on the third day. I think two things make sense of the Savior's words. First, when he says three days and three nights, that is language that is taken from Jonah. So on one level, Jesus employs that wording in order to get them thinking about that story. That's a specific language that would echo the book of Jonah. But secondly, there is ample evidence in Scripture that when the Bible speaks of days, or even when the Jewish people reckoned time, they reckoned it in an inclusive sense, meaning that a portion of a day could count as a full day. So, for example, in Esther 4.16, we read that there's going to be this festival, and that it will last three days and nights. But in Esther 5.1, it records the end of the festival on the third day. Part of a day counted for the whole of a day. We stumbled a little bit because he said that. He said days and nights, so that's got to be 24 hours. I think that's our Western mind that lives in an age of clocks and calendars, bringing a level of specificity that the original audience did not. If they heard, oh, three days and nights, got to be 24 hours, not in their mind. They could hear three days and three nights and think three days in general. And so that if Jesus says, I will be raised on the third day, that would not have caused tension in their thinking. And that, of course, then is in line with the references there in Esther that uses three days and three nights to refer to a third day period. But the conclusion is on the third day. So Jesus is saying there, you're going to put me to death, and I'm going to spend three days in that tomb. But on the third, I will be raised from death. And the big point here is that that deliverance will authorize me as the divine messenger. The whale spat Jonah out, recommissioning him to be a prophet. The grave will release me, and that will validate that I am who I claim to be. And of course, we can then chase that down with 1 Corinthians 15, all the witnesses and nobody that arose to, to, to challenge that event or seek to overturn it in Jesus' day from among his contemporaries. Great paths to go down, but for tonight, just confining ourselves to Matthew here, that is the message he is telling them. You will reject me, but I'll show that I am who I claim to be when God raises me from the dead. But Jesus goes on to say, not only does my sign echo the Old Testament, but as we've already hinted at, my ministry brings the Old Testament to fulfillment. I'm the ultimate manifestation of all of these types. So notice verses 41 and 42. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented of the preaching of Jonah, and now something then greater than Jonah is here. Likewise, the queen of the south, because she came to hear Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. Now, I want you to notice that the phrasing here is the opposite of what Jesus utilized in chapters 10 and 11. Remember, there he said, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah and Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment. They'll get a lighter judgment or will be more tolerable by comparison for them than it will be for you. Or Jesus' word, Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented but they, but you have not, therefore it will be more tolerable for them. So there Jesus appeal, appeals to people who did not repent. 
Here Jesus compares Israel with previous generations that did repent. So when Jonah went to Nineveh, they repented. When the queen of Sheba came to hear Solomon's wisdom, that's God drawing her to hear it and a believer coming from the ends of the earth. And so Jesus makes the point, well, they're going to rise up on the last day and condemn you. These wicked cities will get a lesser condemnation than you, and these believing Gentiles will rise up and condemn you. And Jesus' point is, you, you think of the response, the, those lesser lights made there. Like, you know, none of it didn't hear as much as you and I hear. The Queen of Sheba didn't hear as much as you and I hear. They, they didn't hear as much as what Jesus was teaching to those cities. So how much greater then will the condemnation be? I mean, they got less light and made a better response. Now a greater, the greatest prophet is there. The greatest King has come. The wisest one has come. And Israel will not recognize his authority. And so Jesus says, when that last day comes, when that day of general judgment comes, and all the wicked rise, they will be saved, and you will not, because they believe, and you do not. And so thus we can see, this is how Jesus responds to these challenges to his authority. He's already said, I'm greater than the temple. Now he says, I am Israel's greatest prophet. I'm greater than the temple, so I'm Israel's greatest priest. And I am Israel's greatest king. All those ways that God spoke to his people in times past, all the ways that he communicated the gospel to them, through the words of the prophet, the sacrifices of the priests, the reign of the kings, they have all come together now and united in Jesus. And he is the ultimate manifestation. And he's put that message before them. He's shown them before that there are signs. There's going to come a final sign. And so now the ball is in their court. Israel, you need to repent. And that brings us then to make sense of this strange passage in verses 43 to 45. This passage about an impure spirit who goes out seeks arid places and then returns to the house he left with seven other demons to once again inhabit and wreck it. Now maybe you've read that passage before and just wondered, what is Jesus talking about here? I've read this several times. I was always wondering, okay, what is the Savior getting at with these words? I think this strange passage makes a lot of sense when we see the context where it is. He's given this warning to Israel. And so now I think his words here are illustrating the severity of his warning and the importance of their response. I say that especially because of look at the end of verse 45. Jesus says, that is how it will be with this wicked generation. So whatever it is he's saying about demons there, he's trying to make a point about the present generation. Alright, well what is the point then? What is... What is Jesus saying here? Again, the bare bones are easy to understand. The, the, the story, the parable, the, the illustration is, is easy enough. When a demonic spirit is cast out, it, you need something else to take its place. So that this demon goes out and he wants to inhabit something. He goes through these arid places and, and he can't find anywhere to live. And so he wants to go back to the original house, the original person where he was dwelling. 
When he comes back, he finds it that it's been reformed, it's been cleaned up. But if there's nothing there, the demon will go and take seven spirits more wicked, and they will go in and live there. So the demon goes out, but apparently nothing takes its place. So when the demon goes back, even if he finds a better situation, if there's nothing more powerful living in the house, the demon will go back in. So what is Jesus getting at? With these strange words. Like I said, when a demonic spirit is cast out, something needs to take its place. What might that something be? Jesus said back in verse 28, If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. I drive out demons, and the Spirit of God should take its place. I drive out the rule of the wicked one. And so God's rule, God's kingdom must take its place. When I free people from demons, something needs to take its place. Something good, the, the, the one good thing, God. Or else, the demon is going to come back, overtake the person, and the condition will be worse than before. So when a demon goes out, that person needs to become God's disciple and follow him. Think Mary Magdala. It says that God cast seven demons out of her. And she became a follower of of Jesus. I think Jesus is using this as an illustration or a paradigm, a picture story for the people standing in front of him. Could we think of this as a paradigm for how demon possession in general works? Maybe I won't rule it out. But I think Jesus's main point is to give a warning, to give an admonition to Israel. I am here, Jesus says. I am removing demons. I am bringing God's spirit. I am establishing God's reign. Israel, this is the time then to submit to me and to receive the Spirit. And if you don't, then the troubles will return when I am gone and your condition will be worse than before. It's almost as if there was an avalanche coming in or, or a mighty flood and Jesus is there pushing back the flood by his power. He's pushing back the darkness. He's pushing back the demons. He's, he's keeping the temple standing. But if the Spirit of God will not take up residence among them, if they will not be for him, then eventually he will go. When he goes, it'll be like that temple that Solomon wrecked. It's going to fall down upon them. The demons and the darkness and the evil will all come rushing back. And the latter condition will be worse than the former. So this basically provides the, the, the punctuation, the finishing touch on Jesus telling them, you don't need to be asking for signs, you need to put your faith in me. I'll give you one more sign, and if you don't receive it, then the end condition will be awful. So those are the signs for unbelievers. Here then, in the, following, in the closing verses, is family for believers. There is an intentional contrast here. Matthew puts these verses in 46 through 50 to be an intentional contrast to what has come before. And it will also make a nice transition to the next chapter where Jesus talks about the nature of his kingdom and how the kingdom will come. We've seen in chapters 11 and 12 mostly harsh reactions, hostile reactions, objection. There's been a hint at the Jesus followers. He talks about these little ones who believe in me. But now Jesus brings in this picture of his true family to show even in the midst of such antagonism, there are those who submit to me. 
There are those who embrace the message of the kingdom. And again, it sets us up for chapter 13, where we have all those parables that say, yeah, things are starting small, but the final consummation will be glorious. Here's this little family in the midst of hostile Israel, but that little family is going to grow. It's going to grow into a worldwide community of faith, and the end for that family will be greater than even the beginning. Now, Jesus' words here are set up by a visit from his family. By the way, this is the first time we've seen mention of Jesus' family since the opening chapters of the gospel. You read the opening of Matthew and Luke, and you've got Mary and Joseph and family. It's very prevalent, and they just kind of disappear. And then you have these chapters about Jesus, and this is the first mention of his family since. We do read here that Jesus has siblings. It says his brothers and sisters came. We do not have a reference to Joseph. We have a reference to his mother, but no reference to Joseph. So that likely implies that he was dead by this time. Mary comes with the rest of the family because Joseph is no longer on the scene. Now Mark chapter 3 verse 21 implies a somewhat antagonistic motive for the visit. It said they, his family thought they were out of his mind. And so they kind of came to get him and, and take him away and put him somewhere safe. Was that driven by the brothers and the sisters? John tells us they didn't yet believe in Jesus. Did perhaps even Mary waver in her face? She's very steadfast in the opening chapters, but maybe like John the Baptist, she wavered in her faith. The main point is this. Who is Jesus' true family? And Jesus' words here are very clear. He says, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. One author writes, those who follow Jesus have committed themselves to do the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so they have entered into a new relationship with God. God is now their heavenly Father. And when you think of the Sermon on the Mount, how many times does Jesus in that sermon make reference to my heavenly Father? And if he takes care of the birds, will he not also take care of you? See, when we agree to do, when we submit to God's reign, when we surrender to do his will, we enter into this new relationship. We get a new father. We get a new family where Jesus says, the, those who do my will, those are my brothers and sisters. We have new brothers and sisters in the Lord. Jesus himself, our, our elder brother, so to speak, in this new relationship in the family of God. Helps us understand how to think about other Christians and other Christian communities. How do we understand where they stand before God if they're different from us? Are they doing the will of their Father in heaven? When we do that, that's the greater righteousness than the scribes or the Pharisees. Now maybe Jesus' words strike you as somewhat harsh here. I would say simply Jesus is living out the principle he gave in chapter 10. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Uh, you know, it's, Jesus is trying to show that even the most important earthly ties can't stand in the way of loyalty to the kingship of God. If there's a conflict, God's kingship comes first. And there are plenty of references in the gospel to Jesus honoring his parents, even there in, in Luke 12, where after they lost him in the temple, you know, he said, I'm doing my father's business. 
And then it says he went home and he was subject to them. Uh, passages in John where Jesus cares for his mother, commits her well-being uh, to John after his death. So loads of references to Jesus honoring his parents. Loads of passages in the Bible that imply perhaps the whole family will love God and they'll, they'll love God together and they'll help one another serve God. So it's not that there's always conflict or that we should disrespect anybody in the name of Jesus, but rather Jesus is making the point we first have to fix our ultimate priorities. And since Jesus has come to do the Father's will, so also those who belong to him do the Father's will. And if we do, we belong in his family. So here's the encouragement, friends. You have a true family and God's family. God is your father. And amongst his people on earth, you will find brothers and sisters. That's good news for those who are perhaps removed from their earthly families due to following Christ. Jesus, of course, is your brother, your elder brother, so to speak. We have a family amongst the people of God. And it's, I love that it's inclusive, that Jesus welcomes all who are ready to do the Father's will. Matthew even appears to make a point of saying, you know, who are my mother, my brother, and my sisters? That's not just gender-inclusive language in an English translation. Matthew uses each word trying to say men, women, fathers, brothers, mothers, sisters. These are disciples. These are God's people. All who follow him are part of the family of God. So that's an encouragement. And then there's, of course, a challenge. Being in the body of Christ is not just about fulfilling duties. It's not just about showing up at church. Being a part of the body of Christ is being in a family. And being in a family involves relationships. We don't just show up and do our duty, check boxes. We actually give ourselves to one another. Enter into one another's lives. Relationships are vital and important in the body of Christ. And so there's that encouragement, there's that challenge, and then just lastly, notice this. Jesus expresses this priority, the priority of doing God's will, in the middle of opposition. comes right at the end of these two chapters that are full of antagonism towards Jesus. But you know what? The resistance of others did not prevent Jesus from knowing who he was and what mission he came to accomplish. One author writes, God has a vision for our relationships that is probably bigger than what we understand. And following God and his kingdom and his family brings that kind of joy in that place. So let's give thanks for that. And let's pray for God's help. Father in heaven, thank you that we can call you our Father. And thank you for Jesus who suffered and died to create this new family of faith. As we'll see coming soon in Romans, a worldwide family of faith, of Jew and Gentile, united by this common confession of faith in Jesus as Lord, and as we've seen tonight in this passage, a surrender to do the Father's will. So Father, show us this week, what's your will for us? How can we serve you? How can we serve one another in this body? How can we serve out in our community, at our jobs, in our families, our schools, wherever you put us. Lord, how can we do your will? Help us to hate sin. Help us to love righteousness. Forgive us of our failures. And thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for 
welcoming us into your family, for including us and being, giving us that fellowship. And we give you our thanks and our praise in Jesus' name. Amen.